any of you sort of expect Jason to pop out of the dark with the creepy music? I'm like, well, tense every time I, I, I hear that. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, little free libraries. Uh, so whenever it's a little free library, I'll stop. And this area, it's cool because you have like a lot of like fascinating things that people read. Like I used to live in D.C. and it was like, you know, Chinese foreign policy from the 90s, 40s, 90s, just bizarre topics you get. And one time I found in a little free library uh, this book. It's called uh, The Triumph of Christianity by Rodney Stark. And Rodney Stark is kind of like a half sociologist, half historian, but he's fixated and a lot of his work kind of like driven by the same question. And, and that question is for him, how did Christianity survive? And how did Christianity end up becoming kind of like the dominant religion in the world? Um, in um, 40 AD, there were about a thousand Christians in the Roman Empire. Uh, by 350 AD, that number had gone up to 30 million. That's 53% of the Roman population at the time. Uh, and kind of like there's a quote uh, from, the, from this book that Ronnie started kind of like captures. He says this, Jesus was a teacher and a miracle worker who spent nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee. Often preaching to outdoor gatherings, a few listeners took up his invitation to follow him. And a dozen or so became his devoted disciples. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than several hundred. How... Is it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world? We've been doing this series called It, and in the first week, if you were here, Chad was talking about how um, in almost every sphere of society, people are looking for it, right? Whether it's a business, organ organization, sports team, people, and we talk about it, it's kind of like the it factor, right? It's hard to describe, but we're looking for something that's almost intangible, but will help us transcend mediocrity. Something that will kind of like help us like achieve exponentially more than we can achieve uh, normally. And um, if you were to consider that premise and look at how the early church grew in the first four centuries, it's probably, I would argue, one of the clearest examples of a group of people, of a movement having it. Now, what we've been looking at in the last couple of weeks is that the it behind this incredible impact that the church had, it's not actually an it, right? It's not a vibe, it's not a force, it's not a, a genesis qua. Like the, the it behind the impact of the early church is very clearly a person. It's a he, it's the Holy Spirit, one of the members of the Trinity, God. The secret of the early church was that God himself through his spirit, was among them, empowering them. And last week we looked at kind of like this incredible event, the day of Pentecost, where the their disciples of Jesus are together, and they're praying, and they're seeking God, and there's this spectacular uh, eruption of God's presence through his spirit, where there's this rushing wind, and these tongues of fires, and, and, and the people praying start speaking in different languages. This incredible event that then the apostle Peter gets up, and he preaches, and thousands of people become followers of Jesus, and sort of like the church gets started from that. And today we're going to do is I want to pick up where we left off last week and look at the next section of that passage which kind of tells us 
what those first days of the early church were like. So this is Acts chapter 2. If you want to follow along, I'm going to read from verse 42 to verse 47. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we start this time? Dear God, we come before you this morning um, believing that you're real and believing that you speak. That in these words that we read that there's power. My prayer this morning is that you would speak through us. That it wouldn't just be my voice, but somehow it be you sharing something that we need to hear. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Um, when I was in seminary, I had this professor, and I was taking a class through the book of Acts. And he opened the class saying that like the, book, if the full name of the book of Acts is Acts of the Apostles. And he used to say, hey, it shouldn't be called Acts of the Apostles. It actually should be called Acts of the Holy Spirit, which sounds cheesy. But his point was that when you look at who the protagonist is, who the, 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 the um, engine that drives the book, the, the power behind everything that happens in the book, it's not just the apostles, it's not Peter, it's not Paul. It's really the Holy Spirit. That's the true protagonist of the book of Acts. And probably you don't see that anywhere more clear than in the chapter that we've been at the last couple of weeks, Acts chapter 2, right? Like the, the last week we saw how the Holy Spirit is poured out on the first disciples and, you know, this event kind of like becomes a catalyst for the beginning of the church. And, you know, in that passage it's super obvious that the Holy Spirit the one I work, right? Because if you've been following through the Gospels, let's just say that Peter isn't the sharpest knife in the drawer, Right? And all of a sudden, he's like this incredible orator that can't get up and preach, and everybody wants to become a Christian. Like, clearly, there's a power behind Peter's words that goes beyond Peter. It's a part of the Holy Spirit. Now, the passage that we read today, it kind of like makes this transition where you go from talking, like having this the incredible description of power, and it seems a little bit more, for lack of a better term, sort of like mundane. Like, now we're just kind of like talking about what the church does and how they lived. And it would be very easy to think, that the only thing that's going on here is that uh, the writer of the book of Acts is kind of like just going into like a descriptor mode of what's going on. But when you think about it, even this passage that we've looked at, it's an incredible story. And what I mean by incredible story is not that I don't believe it. What I mean is it's hard to believe by itself, right? That these people just started hanging out and wanted to be with each other all the time because... I like you guys, I'm not sure I want to see you guys every day, right? And, and they wanted to like share meals every day and they're selling their possessions. It's a story that, it's almost like you're reading it and you're thinking, okay, there's some, there has to be something more, something behind it. And when you think about the whole passage as a whole, well, what if what we're seeing in this passage is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit that we started seeing last week at the beginning of chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost, 
What if it's the work of the Holy Spirit what's really drawing this group of people together and allowing to become this type of community? Think of what we see in the passage, right? They devote themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to sharing meals, to prayer, to generosity, which on the surface, none of those things are that novel. But look at the effect that that has. There's this deep sense of awe in the midst of them. There is this, you know, miraculous signs and wonders that the apostles are doing. And people become incredibly generous. And everybody's needs are taken care of. And apparently they become very popular and accepted by the society at large. And your goodwill with the people. And then it says that the Lord just added to their numbers. It wasn't even like they were trying to grow. People were just naturally attracted to those things. It's like the output of the life of the church is kind of like disproportionate to the things that they were doing. And part of what the writer, I think, is doing is trying to show you, hey, what's going on here is not just a natural, normal thing. There's kind of like this power behind it that's making their work exponentially more effective than anything that they could have planned. The natural conclusion that we arrive when we look at these two sections as a whole is that what happened in the midst of those people went beyond their efforts and what they were doing, that it was the Holy Spirit working in their midst through the rhythms of life and through the practices that we're doing, bringing about this incredible and beautiful community. And for me, that shows us a couple of important things. Number one is this. The Holy Spirit does most of his work in the context of community. Think about the passage we looked at last week, right? The day of Pentecost. The disciples are gathered together. They've been praying together. They've been seeking God together. And it's in the context of that togetherness that we see the Holy Spirit move. The, the passage that we looked at today, you know, the, 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 uh, which, by the way, this is the explanation of the book of Acts for the impact that the early church had, right? And what are they doing? They're all hanging out together. This, this happens in the context of community. Uh, one of the things I oversee here, the church is a small group. So we, I, I work, you know, we have the system that creates this... Um, Questions for discussion. I'm a part of a couple of different groups. And one thing I've noticed is that every time we've been talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, a lot of the stories that we share, which are beautiful stories, and I'm glad people are vulnerable enough to share them, but a lot of the stories that we share are stories about personal, individual experiences with the presence and the power of God. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But when you look at the Bible, when you look at how the Bible introduces the work of God in the world, what you see is actually the Holy Spirit working first and foremost in the context of community. It would seem that in our highly individualistic modern society, we sort of like expect and seek God in our personal sphere, not as much in our corporate sphere. But it was in the context of community that the Holy Spirit moved. The Holy Spirit is particularly present in our life together. And by the way, this is where our, our understanding of the Trinity is important, right? Uh, there's this passage in Matthew 18 where Matthew says, For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. Right, he's talking to his disciples and saying, hey, I'm going to be in the midst of you. If you look towards the end of, of Matthew, he says, surely I am with you until the end of the age. Do you know what the fulfillment of those promises of Jesus is? It's the Holy Spirit, right? And, and the reason for that is uh, 
Because God at its core, at his core is community, right? It's this, it's this relationship in the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We looked at a little bit about that last week. And one of the things that we kind of like left on the cutting room floor because of time is that part of how God kind of like explains himself and, and, and kind of like gives us a revelation, a peek into the life of the Trinity is that it's this constant um, relationship of love between Father, Son, and Spirit. And the part of what means to become a follower of Jesus is that we're sort of like, like dragged into that relationship, right? The, the, the core of what it means to experience the love of God is to, to experience that communal love that exists within the Godhead. So it only makes sense that the, that the setting in which you're going to see the Holy Spirit most present, most at work, is in the context of community. Now, the second thing is this. The Holy Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. And this is what I mean by that. Think about last week, we looked at the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit manifests in this particular way. What are the disciples doing? They're not just going about their own lives and they're not sitting around, I don't know, like doing Duolingo on their phones or something, right? Like, like they are seeking God. They're praying. I was gonna make first a joke about they're playing Candy Crush, and I don't think anybody has played Candy Crush in five years. So like, what does people do? They play Duolingo or the world. I don't know anything. Anyway, my point is this: the disciples are seeking God. The Holy Spirit shows up in the context of the disciples seeking God. Think about the passage that we read today, right? Like the, 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 the early church, it says the passage, they devoted themselves to these different practices, to, to seeking, to seeking uh, God, to the teaching of the apostles. It's in the context of them being together and seeking God that the Holy Spirit moves. You see, it's not only that God wants to draw us into this in our communal relationship of the Trinity, and that's how he wants to experience, uh, he wants us to experience love. It's also that one of the things that you see through the Bible is that one of God's kind of like main impulses is to invite his creation into partnership with him. If you go back to the book of Genesis, what you see in the book of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth, the world, and then places in this world plants and animals and people and then what does he say he says be fruitful and multiply take dominion over here what he's saying he's saying basically hey i'm creating this canvas for you and i want you to go ahead and fill it and do something beautiful with it god the, from the beginning the impulse of god is always to partner with people in the world of yes with the church is the same thing god is through the church, like Jesus calls Peter and says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. It's always a, the impulse of God. It's always an impulse to invite us into joining with him. Which means then that it only makes sense that the setting that you're going to see the Holy Spirit most present is when we're leaning in to seeking him. Now, I want to make an important distinction because there's a way that you can hear me say that and you can think that what I'm saying is that you have to earn God's presence. Right? That if you behave well enough, if you do enough good deeds, if you don't sin too much, if you give enough money to a church, if you kind of like pay your dues, that then you're going to experience God. And I don't think that's what's going on. I think that what's going on, it's more that the Holy Spirit is responsive to pursuit and to devotion. 
that, 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 because the work that they're doing is what? It's seeking God. The work of the, earth, of the first disciples are gathered together is what? It's praying. The work of the early church is devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. Like there's something about when we lean into God, when we seek God, that God responds to that. I heard a pastor once saying it this way. Uh, God goes where he's wanted. What we see in this passage is this early passionate pursuit of God by the early church, which takes me to this question. What is there for us to learn and do today? If this is true, if the Holy Spirit has the power to transform us as a community, to take the things that we do and exponentially multiply their impact in the world, then what should we do? And I think we see the answer on verse 42. All the believers, what to say? Devoted themselves. What's the thing that the early church did? They devoted themselves. Well, what does that mean? If you look at the passage as a whole, one of the things you're going to realize is that this group of people completely rearranged their lives in order to pursue God and each other. Verse 46, for example, will tell you that they were gathering in the temple to worship every day that they were almost apparently sharing most meals together, that they were being so radically generous. They were selling their possessions to make sure that everybody had their needs taken care of and paid each other's bills. However their lives looked like before they were Christians, before they were followers of Jesus, that changed. If I was to attempt to define devotion, I would say this. It's a passionate pursuit of something or someone that takes precedence over our preferences and convenience. When we look at this passage, we want to see that there were two main things that they were devoted to. Number one, well, obviously, devotion to God, right? What's the main engine of what they're doing is they're seeking the presence of God, whether it's in the passage we looked at last week, in the passage we're looking at this week, the early church was passionately pursuing God. All the things that they were doing, praying, getting together at the temple, uh, devoting themselves to the teachings of the apostles, all those things are evidence of devotion. The second thing... Well, it wasn't only devotion to God, but it seemed to also be devotion to each other. They're together. They're sharing meals. They're selling possessions to make sure that everybody's needs are taken care of. What are those things? Those are evidence of devotion to each other. And I think this is important because what you see here is that devotion is not only about emotion. I'll make a pause and say this. The cheesiest thing a pastor can do is do the whole rhyming towards thing. I couldn't help myself, okay? It was right there for a taking. I had to make that line, okay? Anyway, going back to this. What's, what, what I'm trying to say is this. Their devotion to God and their devotion to each other wasn't just something that they felt or, or wished or desired. It translated into practical, tangible things that they did. It was a total rearrangement of their lives and their priorities around the thing that they were devoted to. To very, very practically, they instituted rhythms, right? They were meeting at the temple each day. Other, part, other places tell us that they were celebrating the Lord's Day. So we're gathering together on Sunday to celebrate the Lord's Day. They were gathering together to share meals. There was these rhythms of life that they had. And there were also these practices that they were doing. They were praying. They were eating together. They were listening to the teachings of the apostles. They were practicing generosity. 
in order to pursue what they were devoted to. Devotion practically looks like rhythms and practices. And it was in the midst of those rhythms and practices that the Holy Spirit started working in them and transforming them into the kind of people who would gladly do this in the first place. Because, and that's important because of this. What do you think about for a minute about how different this description is from how probably most of us experience church today? I really don't mean to make this a guilt trip, but my experience of church at least is that um, church is one more commitment among many other commitments that we have. I mean, think about work or friends or family or sports, like vacations, whatever it is. And don't worry, this is not me trying to sell you to let's sell our possessions and move to Puerto Rico and start a hippie community or anything like that. Although, doesn't that sound cool? Anyway, um, and I also understand that, you know, we live in a very different world in the first century, and I'm sure that most of us, we're doing the best we can, right? Uh, I'm uh, a week and a day away from being a father of a second child, a daughter. Thank you, thank you. I'm really excited. And what that means is, I'm dropping this message about community and devotion. I'm pissing out for five weeks, so take care. Anyway, but my point is this, right? Um, whatever, our modern, the, whatever the modern equivalent of devotion is, if we're honest with ourselves, our, rela- our current relationship to God and church probably doesn't look like that completely. A few weeks ago, I read this article on The Atlantic by... A guy named Jake Miller, he's the uh, editor of a Christian magazine called Mere Orthodoxy that I like. And uh, the article was a review of another book called The Great Dechurching that came out a few months ago. And the book was kind of like a study of the last 25 years of church attendance in America. In the last 25 years, um, the church has lost 40 million people. <laughs> There's 40 million people less going to church today than 25 years ago. And... The book is basically a story of why that's the case, what happened, right? And you would think that you would have reasons like, you know, the pastor stole the money and every Christian is a hypocrite and politics and secularism. And all those things are there, but the prevalent reason was different. Let me read you a quote from the article. The book suggests that the defining problem driving out most people who live is just how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. Workism reigns in America. And because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that doesn't add up. In other words, everything in our world today is set up to go against community. Against the type of community that we see in the book of Acts. And, you know, what's funny is that, you know, he goes on the article and says, if you think about it, So many of the most profound needs of this modern society 
You know, the, the, the feelings of anxiety and isolation and loneliness, the financial pressures that sometimes we experience or, or, or desire for belonging and love and acceptance. Well, what's the place where those things could be met? It's the church. And he kind of like expresses that there is this tension between the fact that the one place that you probably need, the one community, the one body that we probably need more, is the one body that's the hardest to get to. There's this quote that, to be honest with you, haunts me a little bit. He says this, but a vibrant, life-giving church requires more, not less, time and energy from its members. It asks people to prioritize one another over our career. To prioritize prayer and time reading scripture over accomplishment. This may seem like a tough sell in an era of de-churching. If people were already leaving, especially if they are leaving because they feel too busy and burned out to attend church regularly, why would they want to be part of a church that asks so much of them? And then he goes on to give you a couple of different answers and ideas. And his main point is basically church has become very consumeristic and we haven't really casted this compelling vision for what church life could be. But to be honest with you, since I read this article, and I shared it with, with Chad and, and, and Casey, who works with me, and you know, one of the things that we've been thinking through those weeks is like, it's kind of right, you know? Like, it could be easy for me to, st- to stand here on this stage and just like berate you and say, you're bad Christians, right? Like, you're not devoid enough. And my guess is that all of you are exhausted. And you have to go home and feed your kids and put them there to go for a nap. And one of you has to stay with them and their one has to go to Costco. That's not my afternoon. That's my afternoon, actually. And, <laughs> and you have to, 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 you know, to wrangle schedules for the whole week. You're doing your best, probably. And it's a solution, really, me just getting here and telling, hey, you have to go to church more and you have to do more. And this is what I want to tell you. And I'll get to an answer to that question. One of the things I've been thinking throughout this week is that I'm not sure this is that much different from how life was in the first century, right? Like, I don't think that the people in the first century, even the people that were Christians, they were just happily saying, hey, I want to sell that extra house that we have, right? Because they didn't have an extra house. They were selling positions that were dear and, and, and expensive and, you know, that they couldn't really get much access to. Uh, I don't think people say, hey, I want to spend all my time with these people I've never met before and they probably don't like. I think that for them, there was something more than that that was allowing them to give themselves to this type of life. And I think that that's where the work of the Holy Spirit kicks in. That you see... Devoting yourself to rhythms and practices at the beginning is not easy. If anybody has tried to start a workout routine, you know that, right? It's not the easiest thing to do. It's hard. It's complicated. It's difficult. And at some point, as you give yourself to that, what happens? It becomes a little bit easier to do, and a little bit easier to do, and a little bit easier to do. And before you know it, if you don't go to the gym, if you don't go for that run, then you feel like something's missing in your life. I don't think that's too different to what the Holy Spirit did in the first century. That these people reoriented their lives around this different type of life, and it was hard. And yet, as they were doing that, the power of God met them there, 
and empower them to do it, but not only empower them to do it, they, it made them into the type of people that wanted to do more of that. There's this a commentator uh, from the book of Acts that says it this way. He says, the space of this common, by this common, he means the common life that the people were living at the time, was where life stories, life projects, plans, and purposes were being intercepted by a new orientation. This common is created by the Spirit. How could the things they held dear not be drawn toward the common? This new gathering, this ecclesia, time, talent, and treasures, the trinity of possessions we know so well, would fill the pool of this holy vertex. What he's saying is this. None of the things that we're looking at in this passage are normal. And when you look at them, you say, man, that sounds hard and difficult. It's what? It's because it is. The secret is two things. One is that you're not going to do it alone. That the Holy Spirit wants to partner with you. The second secret is that the Holy Spirit partners with you as you devote ourselves to rhythms and practices. The Holy Spirit very slowly starts turning us into the type of people that want to do those things. I'm not here to make you feel guilty because of how little time you have for church. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you a rest. What I'm trying to tell you is that perhaps the antidote to your exhaustion and your anxiety and how difficult sometimes life feels may be found at the feet of Jesus. And that maybe the place and the setting which you can experience Jesus more is in the midst of his people. And if you would just take the first steps of arranging your life in these practices, then Jesus would do something powerful in you. Now, this is the thing. Remember the beginning, we were looking at how Rodney Stark is saying, hey, like, you know, how did the church get that big? What, how do people want to be good? Because this is the thing. Right now we're looking at this, this incredible life of the church. Everything is happening. Everybody's excited. What's about to happen in the book of Acts is that persecution is going to come. I mean, a Christian is going to become really hard. And you know what? That doesn't kill the church. <laughs> it makes it grow more. And the reason why it makes it grow more is because the church, in the midst of persecution and difficulty, it starts to explain such a different and compelling way to live that the only thing people want is, hey, I want some of that. And in a world that's mired by war and hatred and, you know, opposition in every single way and division in every single way, that maybe the solution for that is for us to see a, a new way to live. And maybe the place, the gathering, the community where a new way to live happens is in the church. Um, a few years ago, I read this uh, magazine article. It was by Ma Malcolm Gladwell, and he was actually talking about uh, the story that he read about a village in south-central France called Le Chambon. I don't speak French, but probably that's how you say it. Anyway, um, during World War II, if you know, parts of France were kind of like taken over by the Nazi regime, and they installed this puppet government called the Vichy government, and they were kind of like basically doing whatever the Nazis wanted them to do. In the midst of this village, there was a pastor named Andre Trogme. And um, he was pastor of a church in the village. And one of the things that they did in that church is that they had a school. 
And in that time, what starts happening is that Jewish people all over France start being persecuted. And as they're being persecuted and arrested, they start escaping and fleeing. And where do they flee? They go south to Le Chambon. And what they do in this school is that they start taking in Jewish refugees. There's a picture of some of the kids that were part of that school. And eventually, the government gets, a, gets an ear of this, and they send kind of like an emissary to see what's going on. And they receive the emissary, and they throw kind of like this parade for him. And then a group of uh, emissaries from the school give a letter to uh, this, uh, you know, person from the Vichy government. And the letter says this. We have learned of the frightening scenes which took place three weeks ago in Paris, where the French police, on orders of the occupying power, arrested in their homes all the Jewish families in Paris to hold them in the Vildehip. The fathers were torn from their families and sent to Germany. The children torn from their mothers who underwent the same fate as their husbands. We are afraid that the measures of deportation of the Jews will soon be applied in the southern zone. We feel obliged to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews. But we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to the gospel teaching if our comrades whose only fault is to be born in another religion received the order to let themselves be deported or even examined, they would disobey the order received and we would try to hide them as best as we could. What leads a group of people on the first centuries to resist an empire that was persecuting them and killing them? The power and the change that the Holy Spirit has done among them. That eventually, as plagues start hitting the Roman Empire and everybody else flees, you know who stays behind? Christians. Who takes care of the wounded and the sick? Christians. That in the midst of the most horrific persecution of a group of people we've probably seen in history, you know who stands up and says, no? Christians. Not because they're braver or, or, or more virtuous, but because the power of the Holy Spirit in their midst has changed them into the kind of people that can do that. And, you know, it does, it's not lost on me the irony of sharing a story like this in the current times in our world. I don't have solutions for the worst of the world today. But it would seem that part of how God wants to change the world is by creating a community that says, there's a different way to live. Would you like to join? And that's something that's worth devoting ourselves to. My invitation to you this morning is, would you like to devote yourself to God and to each other? So we can see the thing that the Holy Spirit can do in our midst.